If you've got your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and make your way to the Old Testament book of Judges. It's the seventh book in the Bible. And this morning, we are going to start embarking on a particularly rare journey in the life of many churches, and we're going to make our way through the book of Judges. If you're familiar at all with the book of Judges, it may simply be that you've dipped into Judges once or twice to read about stories of men like Samson or women like Deborah or leaders like Gideon. Maybe you've read a children's Bible along the way and you're familiar with those names. But when it comes to actually sitting through the entirety of the book of Judges and listening to the Lord speak, it's, it's something that you've never really done. You've never really had the privilege to do. You've never been led in it. And this morning, we're going to start that rare journey of, of listening and allowing the Lord to speak to us through this great book. But why is it that it's a book that not many of us are very familiar with? Why is it one that we jump into and come out of as fast as we actually go in? Well, here's the thing. Judges is a very hard book. It's not hard to read. It's not hard to understand. But Judges is a hard book and we avoid it to our own peril because it is in the Bible the most morally taxing book of the entire Bible. It is the darkest and most morally heavy book in the entire Bible. The book of Judges, like no other book in the entire Bible, will bring us face to face and put on technicolor display the reality of the depravity of sin and the consequences of sin in the lives of God's people. Nowhere else do we come quite as up close and face to face with the reality of the sin that, are, that resides in our own hearts and the consequences of our sin and the nature of our own depravity the way we come face to face with it in the book of Judges. If you've never actually read the book of Judges, if you've never walked through the book of Judges, then you may not know that some of the most deplorable, uh, dark, maybe even horrendous stories of the way mankind has treated one another are found in the book of Judges. It's not just fleece in water and things like that. It, it's a dark book. It's a heavy book. It's a taxing book. But at the same time, in the midst of the darkness, the book of Judges provides for us the perfect backdrop for the unrelenting grace of God. Now, I, I was thinking this week about it, and, and all I could see, for those of you that are, that are more pictorial than, than I am, is, is, is that, that black velvet that jewelers tend to lay out on the counters when you go look at jewelry. When they pull the rings out and they pull the stones out, they never just lay it on the glass. They always lay down a piece of dark fabric or dark velvet to put the stones on because it's on that backdrop of that perfect darkness that the stone is able to shine, that you're able to see it more clearly. And if we'll listen, the, the darkness of the book of Judges gives us the perfect backdrop for the brightness of the grace of God to actually shine. My prayer for myself, my prayer for you, my prayer for us as a, as a people is that as we engage with the book of Judges together, as you engage with it as a family, as you engage with it as a community and with your friends, that you, yes, would come face to face with the reality of sin, but that you won't be overwhelmed by the reality of depravity, but you would begin to be overwhelmed again and again and again by the magnitude of God's grace as you see it work itself out in the book. So this morning, we're gonna take our, our first steps in the journey. And as we do, as long as the clock lets me, 
We're going to try our best to cover a lot of Bible. And by God's grace, here's what I want. I want you to be able to get a sense of what this book is all about, why it's so important to understand it, and why really it's the perfect book for God's people now. Why it's important for us, even even here and now. So if you haven't found Judges, go ahead and make your way over to it. And while you do, I'll give you a bit of background. We're going to pick up the story in the book of Judges in the life of of God's people at a time when God had had told them that he was going to give them the land that he had promised, when God had spent time through Moses reminding them of who he was and what he had done. And then through the leadership of Joshua, the people of God had actually conquered the nations of the land that God was giving them. And now in the book of Judges, what we're going to pick up on is what military strategists call the the mop-up operations. The people of God now have to go into the land that God had given them to possess it. And there are still peoples of other nations residing in that land, and they have to go and take possession of that land. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Judges, especially in the beginning as we start our way through it. But here's what I want you to understand actually about the book itself and how we're going to work our way through the beginning of it this morning. The book of Judges, and I'm not aware of any other book in the Bible that does this, but I could stand to be proven wrong here. But the book of Judges is one of the only books I know of that actually has two introductions and two conclusions. Two separate introductions and two separate conclusions. Or you could say it has one large introduction, but two different perspectives on the same thing. And one big conclusion, but two different perspectives on the same thing. Kind of like in Genesis, you have one story of creation from two different perspectives. The book of Judges has two introductions or one introduction from two perspectives. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1, going all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, you get the first introduction or the first perspective. That's going to come through the lens of God's people who are going into the land to take possession of it. The second introduction or the second perspective that sets us up for the whole book of Judges starts in chapter 2, verse 11. And it goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 5. This perspective is the perspective of God. This is what he sees as he looks at his people going into the land to take possession of it. This morning, I'm going to do the best I can with the time that we have to help us see all of that, to get a picture of those two perspectives as an introduction to the book. But there are some verses that I just skipped right there. And the verses that I just skipped are essential in helping us understand what's going on. You see, these two introductions are these two perspectives. If you think about them like two sides of a door, the door swings on a hinge. It opens and closes on a hinge. There are some verses in between these two perspectives that serve as a hinge for us that help us to understand how to read and and, and begin to sell lens to help us see these two introductions through. They really help us understand the entire book of Judges. And that starts in chapter 2, verse 6, and goes through verse 10. So that's where we're going to start this morning. So if you've got your Bible, go to chapter 2. We're going to start with the hinge, see the perspective that it gives us, and then go back to the two introductions. Chapter 2, verse 6, this is what it says. When, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great works the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timoth-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Now, just as a sidebar, 
If you flip back a page or two to the end of the book of Joshua, this is basically a summary of how the book of Joshua ends. It's not word for word, but it's a summary of how the book of Joshua ends. What we get in the next verse is a little piece of new information. This new information will help us interpret the introductions and the entire book of Judges that we're going to see. This is the hinge that these two introductions swing on. Verse 10 says, all of that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That verse right there serves as the chief interpretive lens for understanding the entire book of Judges and even understanding the two introductions that we see this morning. The generation that we're going to follow in the book of Judges, the generations that will come from that generation that we meet in the book of Judges are generations that no longer knew the Lord, no longer knew all that God had done for them. And you need to understand what the the writer of Judges is trying to say here. The writer is not saying that the generation that arose after this and the generation that came after them no longer knew the stories of who God was and what God had done. It's not they no no longer knew the stories of how how God had, had been with their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. No longer that they knew the stories of how God had redeemed them out of slavery from Egypt and brought them to the land of promise. It's not that they didn't know the stories about God and about their people anymore. It's that the reality of who God is and what God had done and the faithfulness that God was showing to his people no longer influenced their lives anymore. It no longer shaped them anymore. It no longer transformed them anymore. They certainly hadn't forgotten the stories. They hadn't forgotten the information. They had simply no longer known the Lord himself. They had forgotten who he was, forgotten what he had done. They knew about him, one writer said, but they didn't know him. And this forgetting God This forgetting of who he is and what he has done, it actually helps us to understand what most people think is is the primary way of interpreting the book of Judges. You find it in Judges chapter 17 and verse 21, a repeated phrase, the people did what was right in their own eyes. Well, they did that because they had forgotten the Lord. They had forgotten who God was and what God has done and that gave rise to a life of doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes. God's people were no longer being shaped, no longer being defined, no longer living out of an understanding and a gratitude for who God is, who God had been for them, and who God was continuing to be for them. See, that's important because before they went into the land, if you were with us last week, we talked a little bit about this, but I'll explain it so if you weren't here, you didn't miss anything. Before they went into the land, God got his people together and through Moses, God rehearsed for them all that he had done for them, who he was, what his character was like, what his nature was like, what he had done for his people and all the promises that he had made and the faithfulness that he was committing himself to for the years to come. And before they went into the land to take possession of it, God says, here's what you need to do. When you get to the land that I have promised you, when you get to the land that I'm taking you to, you must remember. This is the key. You must remember. You must remember that at one time you were slaves in Egypt. You must remember that you were slaves under the oppression of Pharaoh and without hope in this world. But by my right, my mighty right hand reached down, I set you free. I redeemed you. I made a covenant with you. 
I made you my own and committed myself to you. When you get to the land that I'm taking you to and giving you, you must remember. Remembering who I am and what I have done and all that I have committed to, that is meant to shape in you and transform in you an obedience to my word that will produce for you in this land a life of fruitfulness and joy. You remember who I am and and what I have done and let that cultivate in you a generosity and a compassion towards others in the land that I am taking you to. You remember exactly where you were and who I am and what I've done and what I've promised and let that continue to stir in you an increasing gratitude for my redemption. When you get to the land, you've got to remember And so we open up the book of Judges and we find that a generation arose into the land to take possession of it who had forgotten, who no longer remembered. The story's sure, but it was no longer shaping and transforming the way that they were living. And so the book of Judges, as we get into it, not just the introductions, but the entire book of Judges is a gift of grace towards us from God because it exposes to us the reality of what happens when God's people simply forget. When you and I quit remembering who God is and what he has done and all that he's promised. So with that being said, flip backwards to chapter one. Let's try to make our way through this first introduction. We'll get to the second one in a minute. We'll get to the first introduction. This introduction is coming from the perspective of God's people. This is how they understand what happens when they go in to possess the land. I'm going to read some, but for time, I may have to skip around a little bit, but I want you to hear as much of it as I can get in. I want you to hear God's word this morning. So chapter one, verse one, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first against against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go up with you into the territory allotted to you. So those two parts of Israel, those two giant families, they're going to fight together to help each other possess the land that God had given them, right? So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. There's reasons for that. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and they struck it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron and on and on. And I wish I had a map up there for you to see because what the writer is doing is he's just showing us this sweeping nature of their victories. That's what he's chronicling, that that Judah and Simeon together, they're moving from the highlands to the lowlands down to the coastland, back up now, just going in to possess the land, to clean up the land, to take possession of what God had already promised them, and everything's clicking along. And even right after that in verse 11, we get a great little personal story there, and we'll pick up that story next week. We won't get into detail about that this morning, but Caleb, if you remember Caleb, who was one of the spies that spied out the land, who came back with a good report that said, oh, we can go into the land that God's giving us. Caleb makes a a promise. He says, anyone that goes and takes possession of this land over here, I'll give him my daughter as a reward. So his nephew, Othniel, says, I'll do it. 
He goes and does it and, and Caleb gives him his daughter and there's a great story about her asking a, 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 an inheritance from her dad, it's fantastic. But we meet Othniel specifically next week. So we'll come back to this story next week. But the, the campaigns keep going. Look at verse 16, everything's sounding too good to be true. They're taking names up and down the coast, in the hills and in the valleys, giving away their daughters and the daughter's asking for land, it's, it's great. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of the Palms in the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near the Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother. So now Judah's gonna go join Simeon. Simeon's helped Judah get his land. Now Judah's gonna go help Simeon get his land. And they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah and devoted it to destruction. And so the name of the city was called Hamad. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. Just this massive campaign. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Uh Uh-oh. Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it three sons of Anak, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The story has begun to take a turn. Judah's sweeping up and down the land, conquering space, taking possession, joins with Simeon up and down the land, conquering people, taking possession. But all of a sudden, some people are settling. All of a sudden, they seem to run into a people they they couldn't get rid of. And then in verse 27, something's going to happen. A phrase is going to be repeated for us seven times through verse 36. It's going to be a drumbeat of source that we're going to hear over and over and over again. Manasseh did not. Israel did not. Ephraim did not, Zebulun did not, Asher did not, Naphtali did not, Dan did not. Dan didn't get rid of the enemy because they pushed him back. This matters because before they went into the land, when God brought his people together in Deuteronomy chapter seven, you can go read it this week, God said, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of, and the Lord your God clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to the complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Before they went into the land, God said, there are seven nations in the land that I'm sending you to far more powerful than you. But here's the thing, I'm going to drive them out. I'm giving them over to you. So when you get there and I give them over to you, you must put them to destruction. And the writer of Judges says right here in verse 27 through 36, seven times, God's people disobeyed. Seven nations, more powerful than you. I'm going to give them to you. Just show them no mercy. I'm going to defeat them. You just show them no mercy. Seven times God's people disobeyed. When the writer of Judges is chronicling all these did nots, it's not that he's trying to give some historical comprehensive list. It's a theological statement of disobedience. That's what it is. God's people went into the land that God was giving them, to the people that God was giving them to drive out of the land that he called them to possess, and they disobeyed. Of all the things that we could talk about in this introduction, 
and the people's perspective of what they think happened when they went into the land. There's one thing that I want you to see that will shape the way we understand the entire book of Judges. There's so many things we can look at. There's one thing I want you to see, and that's simply this. Forgetting the Lord and all that he has done always leads God's people to compromise with sin. Forgetting always leads to compromise. Forgetting the Lord and all that he has done will always lead God's people to make compromises with sin. God's people had forgotten the Lord. They had forgotten who he was and what he had done. And so when they came face to face with the people that they were meant to drive out, people that God said, I'm going to give into your hand. I know they're bigger than you. I know they're more powerful than you. I'm going to defeat them and give them over to you. You just have to show them no mercy. In the face of that obedience and that difficulty, they compromised. Some chose simply to live with the people. Some just settled with them. Some decided to make a deal with the people. You have this space, I'll take this space. You leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. Some chose to justify their disobedience in favor of their own value and mission. You know what? Why put these people to destruction and show them no mercy? I can make them forced labor and make them benefit me. See, when God's people forget, spiritual amnesia will always lead to compromise with sin. Peter tells us in 2 Peter, this kind of spiritual amnesia and forgetting of God and who he is and what he's done always results in God's people living lives that are nearsighted and blind. And that's exactly what was happening with Israel. They were nearsighted and blind. God had told them exactly what he was going to do, exactly what they were going to face, and exactly how they were meant to respond. Not only had he laid out the fact that they would be more numerous and more powerful, but that he would defeat them. You can go read in Joshua chapter 17 this week that when Joseph came, the people of Joseph came to Joshua and said, you know what? Our people are so numerous in number that we're bigger than the land allotted to us. Can we have more space? But Joshua says, sure, you can have more space. And he gives them a land. You can read it in Joshua chapter 17. He says, you shall have the allotment in the hill country. Even though it's a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its furthest borders. You shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they're strong. You're going to face people bigger and more powerful than you. And I'm going to defeat them. Oh, specifically, you're going to face people bigger and powerful than you with chariots of iron. You're to face them and defeat them because I'm giving them over into your hand. But they had forgotten the Lord. Instead, you read in verse 19, they took possession of the hills, but they they couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. See, when God's people came face to face with these chariots of iron, all of a sudden they felt overmatched. They felt persuaded in their mind and persuaded in their heart that their enemy was too powerful. The odds were were stacked against him. There was no way that they could actually achieve victory. And so when they write out their interpretation of what happens when they go to possess the land, they look at it and say, we couldn't actually take possession because they had chariots of iron. But what we'll come to see from God's perspective is not that they could not because God said the victory is actually mine. You're just supposed to go put them into destruction. The reality was they said, we won't do it. That's what you actually did. You said you won't do it. Their interpretation was we couldn't. 
because they had forgotten the Lord. God's interpretation is simply that you won't do it. See, they were no longer being shaped by the reality of who God is and who he has been for them and who he's continued to be for them and all that he has promised to be for them as their deliverer. They had forgotten. And you see, you can't miss the reason because it's gonna play a role in the entire book. You can't miss the reason why God wanted them to show no mercy to the inhabitants of the land. There's a reason why God said, I'm going to defeat them. I'm going to give them into your hand. And when you get there, you're to show them no mercy. He had already told them. Take some time this week. Go back and read Exodus chapter 23. God says, I will give you the inhabitants of the land into your hand. You shall drive them out before you. So this is long before they go in, right? God says, I'm gonna give them to you. You just have to drive them out. And you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they lead you to sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So before they went into the land, God said, they're more powerful, they're more numerous, but I'm gonna give them into your hand. But when you get there, you should put them to destruction and make no covenant with them. Don't let them to stay and live in the land because what's gonna happen is they're gonna lead you. They're gonna lead you to sin. They're gonna lead you to worship false gods. I know the people will prove to be a spiritual disease for you. So you need to drive them out. Deuteronomy chapter seven. Right before they go in to to take possession of the land, to, to fight these decisive battles initially. God says you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You can't intermarry with them. You can't give your daughters to their sons and take their daughters for your sons, why? for they will turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. And if that happens, God told them in Deuteronomy chapter seven, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm gonna put them into your hand. I'm gonna defeat them on your behalf. You just have to show them no mercy and drive them out because if you let them stay, if you make a covenant with them, listen to me, they will lead you away from me. And in disobedience, my anger will be kindled against you. He told them before they ever went in. So when they disobeyed, when they forgot, and their forgetting led them to compromise, the very thing that God had promised began to happen. Look at chapter two, verse 11. says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, it's the most tragic verse right here. They abandoned the Lord. They, they abandoned him and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, forgetting spiritual amnesia always leads to compromise with sin. And when this compromise with sin goes unchecked, it will always lead to spiritual decay and destruction. That's the trajectory we see throughout the book of Judges. See, here's the thing. Their compromise, the various ways that different tribes compromised with the different nations that were in the land that they were supposed to possess, all those different compromises, it didn't seem like a big deal to them at the time. You know what, why put them to destruction? Why show them no mercy? I can actually make them my slave. I can actually make it work out to benefit me. 
I can, actually, I can actually give them a portion of the land that was allotted to me that isn't the most beneficial. I'll take the most beneficial. That way, if they ever try to rebel against me, we have the higher ground and the higher position. If any nation tries to come and take my land, I've got the higher position. It's better for me. You know what? They've got more daughters than we do. We should let them stay because they've got more daughters that can give to our sons. It will work out better for us. We still conquered the land. We're still in charge. We still call the shots. You see, their compromise didn't seem like a big deal to them at the time. And here's what hit me this week as I was studying this. It's exactly the way that our hearts work when we try to make the same kind of compromises with sin in our own life. We think we can handle it. We think we can compartmentalize it. We think we can make justifications for it. We think we can make deals with it. You know what? I'll give you this part of my life. I'll give you this part of my heart. The rest of it over here is God's. You just stay over there. You know what? I can make this work for me. This will actually work out for me. I, I, I know the Lord calls me to treat people a certain way and, 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 and to treat them with a certain kind of kindness. But you know what? My anger actually gets me things. It works for me. So I'm going to keep this over here. The rest of my life, okay, I, it's over here. It's God's, but you stay here. You know, what, I'll give you this part of the land. I'll take this part. We'll just work it out together. See, friends, learn from God's people and judges. You cannot compartmentalize and keep sin and disobedience safely contained. One writer in, in writing about Judges 1 said, sin will always try to convince you that it can stay in the plains and that you can keep the hills. That coming face to face with your sin and driving it out and fighting it, it'll hurt too much. So you better not mess with it. Just make a deal with it. Let it have a particular area of land in your own life. You stay here, let it stay there. But the reality of it is, he says, that sin will spread. And it will subtly and quietly take over and poison the entirety of your spiritual life. See, if you're here this morning and you're trying to make a deal with sin, if there's something in your heart where God says you must do and you simply say, I won't do, if you're trying to make a deal with sin in your own heart, you need to understand, you need to listen to the book of Judges, you need to learn from God's people then, you can't make deals with sin. You can't compromise with sin. You can't compartmentalize sin. It does not play by your rules. You can't say, I'll give you this piece of my life, stay away from the rest of my life. It doesn't play by those rules. You can't control it like that. Forgetting always leads to compromise and compromise left unchecked will always lead to destruction and decay. And here's what hit me for the first time. It was like a lightning bolt this week when I was studying. Most beautiful day, I was sitting outside. I was at a conference in New York. I was on the edge of Central Park. All the leaves were changing. It was glorious. And I was reading this and I was studying this and something hit me that I had never actually seen before studying the book of Judges. The reason why they were able to compromise and it seemed like such a small deal to them while they were doing it. The reason why when they realized they were compromising, they didn't turn and change and stop compromising was because everything else about their life looked successful. They still took possession of the land. Even though they let the inhabitants stay, they were still in charge. Even though the inhabitants were there, they put them to forced labor. They made it work for them. 
On the surface, they looked victorious and successful. So the compromise they made, the disobedience in their life, it didn't seem in their mind to have the kind of impact that it, it could have had in their life. And I was sitting there, I was, I was sipping a cup of coffee in on a break in the conference, and I read this and it hit me like a lightning bolt. David Jackman, writing about this, he said, pragmatic success with spiritual failure is the way to categorize or define the people of God in the beginning of Judges. It's possible to display the marks of spiritual success while being a spiritual failure in the eyes of God. And it hit me like a lightning bolt because the reality of it is, whether you'll admit it or not, that's the exact thing you and I do when we try to think about the sin we compartmentalize in our life. It really isn't that big of a deal because everything else seems to look good. Let me make it very personal for you. I sat there sipping that cup of coffee and I was trying to figure out how am I so much like Israel? Help me to understand, Lord, how I'm so much like Israel because I'm just like them. Help, help me to see it. And then like, like a bolt, it, it actually hit me. Spiritual failure, pragmatic success. It happens when I forget the Lord. The gospel is no longer sweet to me or there's a certain aspect of my heart in my life that I'm not willing to apply the gospel to and respond in obedience to. I'm trying to compartmentalize that darkness right there. And here's what happens. I get up here and do what God calls me to do on Sunday morning and you send me an email and tell me about how the Lord used what I did to change you and transform you. And I go, yeah, see, that's not that big of a deal. And that thing that I'm compartmentalizing over here, trying to make peace with over here, when God's saying you must and I'm saying I won't and people are still being impacted by what I'm doing, I'm going, it can't be that big of a deal. If it was really that big of a deal, whatever I'm doing here wouldn't have the impact that it has. That's exactly what happened to God's people here. They were still successful. So their compromise didn't seem that significant to them. In their forgetfulness, they were living nearsighted and blind to the reality of their own sin and its impact. See, Judges, this entire book, if we'll be willing to sit and listen, it is a gift of grace from God to us to help correct our nearsightedness. It's a pair of new lenses to help us see because forgetting, forgetting always leads to compromise with sin. And in that compromise, we can still look spiritually successful on the outside. We can even do a good job for a period of time convincing ourselves and others that that sin is actually working itself out for our good. We can justify it. Judges brings us face to face with the tragic reality of that depravity and its consequences because compromise with sin always has consequences. It looked good to them for a while, but it always has consequences. Look at the beginning of chapter two. Chapter two says the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to, to Bakim. Now we could take some time to sit on that, but that, that went up right there, I want you to catch the flavor of what's happening here. That went up is the exact same language used for when Judah and Simeon go up against the Hivazites and the Perizzites. Judah and Simeon were going up against them to put them to destruction. That same energy, that same intent, that same passion, this angel went up to God's people. This was no angel sneaking up behind them and tapped them on the shoulder. This is, this is serious business. He says, I, I brought you up from Egypt. 
I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. They are reminded of what it is they were supposed to remember, what was supposed to shape them, all that God is, all of his saving work, all of his character, all of his faithfulness. I rescued you. I redeemed you. I committed myself to you. I made a covenant with you. All that they were meant to remember that was meant to shape the way they live in the land that God was giving them, that their life will be filled with fruitfulness and joy to the glory of the Lord they had forgotten. And the angel comes and said, this is, this is what I said. This is what you were supposed to remember. You weren't supposed to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You were supposed to break down their altars. But you've not obeyed my voice. What is it you've done? And compromise always has consequences. So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. That's the very thing he already told them, Exodus and Deuteronomy, before they went into the land, when he said, I'm gonna give them into your hand, I'm gonna defeat them, just show them no mercy, make no covenant with them, don't give your family over to their family, don't allow them to lead you away from me, for if you do, they will become a snare to you and my anger will be kindled against you. We already read it, didn't we? But they forgot but they forgot. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke the words to all the people of Israel, they lifted their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bakim and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Compromise always has consequences. The anger of the Lord, the writer says in verse 14, was kindled against Israel. And just as he said he would, he gave his people over to plunderers who plundered them, sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm and the Lord, just as the Lord had warned them, just as he had sworn to them, and now they were in terrible distress. He was faithful to his word, his justice. He is faithful to his character. He is faithful to himself. He had said, if you break covenant with me, if you, if you forget if you, if you don't obey, if you, if you turn your hearts and give them over to the foreign gods, my anger is going to be against you. My hand will not be able to go out before you anymore. And, and that's exactly what happened. God's justice does not allow him to compromise with sin. God's justice does not allow him to pass over sin. Compromise always leads to consequences. But, but then you get to verse 16. Verse 16 says, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Verse 18 says, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning of those who afflicted and oppressed them. You you gotta hear this this morning. Hear Hear the ears you need from the Lord this morning and you're gonna need them for the book of Judges. You need to be able to tune your heart and ask the Lord to tune your heart to hear the the songs and and the sound of, of his grace in the book of Judges. You have to listen for his grace toward wayward rebels here in the book of Judges. His people were giving themselves over to other gods, making covenants with the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals and and the Asherahs. They had placed their hope for fruitfulness and life in the land that God gave them in these foreign gods. Gods that represented fertility and gods that represented power and gods that represented wealth. What they deserved for their disobedience and the breaking of their covenant was destruction. The writer of Judges reminds us 
that while they were chasing other gods, the Lord gave them deliverers. What they deserved was outright destruction, but God gave them deliverers. That's what judges means. Judges is not judicial the way that we think about it. He's not, judges aren't men or women sitting behind big desks in black robes presiding over cases. Judges in the book of Judges are deliverers. And the Lord moved to pity by the groaning of his own people because of those who afflicted and oppressed them, gave them judges to save them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. You've got to begin to hear and to see the compassion of God for his people. God was moved emotionally to see his people hurting. And you've got to catch the magnitude of this. They were hurting and they were suffering the consequences of something they brought on themselves and weren't sorry for. They were suffering under the hand of plunderers and oppressors, consequences they brought on to themselves and they still weren't sorry for it. And God was moved to compassion for them. If you've got kids, you know a bit of this compassion. There are times when your children will find themselves in pain. They will physically be in pain, they will be hurt. And you know what? They did it to themselves. They made a dumb decision. You said don't jump off that and they jumped off it. And now they're crying and they're hurt. But just because they brought that pain on themselves, it doesn't damper your compassion towards them and their suffering. Just because they're not sorry that they jumped off the wall, you told them not to jump off of because it looked like fun, it doesn't dampen your compassion for their pain. The compassion of God for his people was moved, even though the people brought the suffering on themselves and they weren't sorry for it anymore. You and I, so fickle in heart, so prone to wander, so easily forgetting of who God is and, and what he has done, doesn't keep him from having compassion and still moving. You and I, so content to try to make peace with our sin and get treaties with our sin and compromise with sin, still moved with pity, Paul said, while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, God moved. You see, one of the interpretive keys we've got to understand with the book of Judges that in teaching it we tend to get wrong very often is that God didn't raise up deliverers to set his people free from suffering and pain and oppression when they did something. God didn't raise up deliverers in response to the repentance of his people. His people didn't repent. They just cried out and were sorry because of what they were doing. They didn't change. They didn't set the, the people of the nations that were still in their land to destruction. They just cried out and felt bad. God didn't give them deliverers as a reward for repentance. They didn't repent. God gave them deliverers to set them free because of his love. Friends, it's the same way for you and I. God did not send his son to this earth to live the life that you and I were created to live and to die the death that we deserve to die for our sin and then raise him to life, defeating Satan's sin and death on our behalf because we did something to deserve it. God did not send his son to become our deliverer and our savior as a reward for our repentance. No, we were still bowing down to other gods. We were still giving ourselves over to foreign deities. We were still looking to the, the gods of pleasure and power and influence of this world to satisfy us while we were still sinners, he sent his son. Oh, you're gonna have to hear and tune your ears and your heart to hear the compassion and the grace of God in the book of Judges. 
Friends, it's not going to be a picnic to go through it. Even after God, in compassion for his people, gives them deliverers to set them free, you're still going to read in verse 19, whenever the judge died, they turned their back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they didn't drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Friends, Judges brings us face to face like no other place in the Bible with the devastating nature of sin whose grip on our hearts does not give way easily. Learn from God's people in Judges. You can't play with sin. You can't compromise with it. You can't compartmentalize it. You can't make deals with it. It doesn't play by your rules. But learn from God's people and learn from God himself. In love, he still continues to deliver. He still continues to move in compassion. See, if you're a follower of Christ and you're here this morning, it's precisely the redeeming love of God in Christ that you and I are meant to remember. It's precisely that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's while you were still enslaved to sin. You weren't repenting of your sin. You were enslaved to your sin and God sent his son to die on your behalf. It's the redeeming love of God, what he has done in Christ, who he is for us in Christ, and all that he has for you in Christ that you're meant to remember, that is meant to be the fuel in your life to fight against sin, and at the same time, the weapon that you wield in that fight until Jesus himself returns and gets rid of sin once and for all. Remember. So I want you to ask God to give you the courage this morning or give you the courage this week as you reflect on his word, I want, him, I want you to ask him to give you the courage to ask yourself this question. Is there anything in your life which you would say, I can't do? But if God were to write the interpretation of, he would say, you simply won't do. Are there any areas of your heart, and think about it like the book of Judges, any, any unconquered lands in your heart where you're trying to make a treaty you stay over here, you can have this part of my life, but, but I'm gonna let God have the rest of it over here. Are there any parts, let me be specific with you, are there any places in your life where you could say, you know what, I know God says to forgive that person, but I can't. And God would say, no, you're simply not listening. It's that you won't. Are there any people or, or places in your heart where you, where you go to think, if you're gonna be really honest with yourself, that you would say, God says that you're supposed to speak this particular truth in love to this person. And you would say, I can't do that. And he would say, no, it's something that you won't. (laughs) Any part of your heart, any part of your life where you know God says, you shall not do that. And you look at it and go, no, it's simply that I can't stop doing it. And God said, no, no, it's not that at all. It's that you won't. It's that you won't. Are there any places in your life where you would say, I can't, but God would say, it's simply that you won't. Where have you forgotten them? Where are you no longer shaped and transformed and animated by who he is and what he's done? Friends, it's remembering all that God is for us in Christ, all that he has for us in Christ, and all he continues to do for us in Christ that is meant to drive us, animate us, shape us. That is what we wield against the sin in our own hearts that tries to get us to make a deal with it. Where have you forgotten What is it you need to remember? And if you're here with us this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to know I'm so happy that you're here for judges. 
It may sound weird, but I'm so happy that you're here for Judges because I want you to understand something. You're not going to come face to face with the reality of sin and the reality of the holiness of God, and you're not gonna come face to face with the consequences of sin anywhere else in this world like you will in the book of Judges. No one else is gonna talk to you about that. I'm so glad you're here so that you can come face to face with the reality of sin and the reality of the consequences of sin in our own lives and so that you can come face to face with the magnitude of the redeeming grace of God who has sent one final deliverer in his son to come and set us free from the tyranny of our own sin. I'm glad you're here to hear that. Keep coming back to listen. Ask God to help you to see. Help God to help you to hear Friends, it's not going to be an easy journey through the book of Judges. It's not going to be simple. It's hard and it's dark. But it's in the darkness that the light of God's glorious grace shines most bright. I'm gonna pray for you this morning and we're gonna give you a moment to just reflect on God's word and let him deal with you and let you deal with him and then we're gonna respond as his people For those who have tasted the redeeming and freeing love of God through the person and work of his son, we're gonna remember his deliverance. We're gonna remember the deliverance he has given us through his life, death, and and resurrection as we receive communion together. And if you're in here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we're so glad you're here. We ask that when you see people coming forward, that you would just remain in your seat where you are and and ask God to help you have ears to hear, help you have eyes to see your dependence and your need on him. And then we'll sing, we'll make much of him, and we'll be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray for us and and we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning for for your word. We thank you that it, it, would you help us to see what we need to see? Lord, you, you don't shy away from exposing our dependence and our need for you. Lord, you say to us things no one else will say, things that we need to hear, things that we need to know. God, you know in here what every heart, what every heart in here is battling. You know where every heart in here needs to come face to face with its own compromise with sin. Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit, you would expose the places where we've forgotten you. And you would bring us to a place of repentance and a place of delight in who you are and who you continue to be for us in your Son. Well, we ask this morning that you would do that in his name for his glory, for our joy and transformation. Amen.